did you realize it was going to play so well? We don't know if it plays well yet. Yeah, it plays well. Okay, so well you don't know yet. You want me to make this more blue back here so it's more... Yeah, let's do that. More sci-fi? Uh, well, um... How's that look? Is that cool? Ooh, it looks super rad. That's awesome. Yeah, I love it. What was Star Trek to you when you were growing up? Well, Star Trek was... Uh, it was Sunday afternoons, uh, you know, on the couch with uh, my dad, with, you know, the original series, that 60s music playing. Uh, it was uh, summers with the original series movies coming out. I saw them many times in the theater. Uh, and uh, that was an event in my house. Um, Star Trek 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Uh, and then in college, that's when the next generation movies came out. I remember when Next Generation premiered. I remember sitting on the carpet watching it being then I was graduating high school I think when uh, uh, the finale for Next Gen came out. So it's just it's in my DNA. Yeah. What do you think um, what do you think about Star Trek makes you love it so much? Like what do you think when you were growing up besides being a part of it what was it about it that that spoke to you you think? Well, it's so many things, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, certainly the science fiction aspect of being in a starship, you know, right. the, the nautical exploration, that Horatio Hornblower thing mm -hmm. uh, of exploration, uh, what is, is, speaks to me and it, and the notion of family. I mean, look, I, uh, an entry point for me certainly is Wrath of Khan and, and search for Spock and that while I, the original series itself w was a part of me, the 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 core of of those movies is really about uh, a family that comes together to save their own, uh, and that has been a a, a part of the, the storytelling that I uh, gravitate to. I think did that reflect in your family somehow? Well, sure. I mean, it, 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 it always, it's always a part of, of uh, I would I hope of, of every family in some way that uh, you, you, you try, you try and pull together for each other. Uh, and so those are, those are some core ideals that mean a lot to me. When you decided, uh, at what point did you decide that you just had to work for Star Trek? Like, how did that work out? You were at Emerson? Uh, yeah. yeah. So uh, I was, uh, my last year in college, um, Emerson College had a internship program in which you could intern at a production company and get full college credit for it out in Los Angeles. Uh, so I found every fax number I could for every department at Star Trek and faxed my resume, a letter, all but begging to come to work for free. Didn't hear anything for like months. And I was going to settle, I think, for like something like Jersey Films or something. Finally, I get a call from post-production. And, uh, and and that's how I got in, logging tapes and getting coffee and lunches for post-production. And then I became a PA from there. What was that experience like, first getting there and seeing it made in front of you? It must have been surreal. Most of the people I, I was working for, Mary Howard, uh, Brad Yacobian, production people, the Akutas, they were all baseball cards I had from next gen. 
So uh, they were all legends. They were names that I had uh, uh, that I'd seen on television uh, from Next Gen to Voyager to Deep Space Nine forever. Uh, so it was surreal. Everyone was kind of a legend to me as a kid. Uh, so um, it was it was also Harvard in a way. Uh, 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 for how to make television because you're part of every department. Uh, so you, you were, you were, you were learning production. You were learning posts. You were learning art department, you were learning props, you were learning makeup and wardrobe. You were learning all those things, uh, as a PA, it was extraordinary. So that was your master's degree in making television. Yeah, it was a master's degree in making television. Yeah. At what point did you go from PA to, to actually getting into the production more and eventually being Brannon's assistant. Uh, there was an, yeah, Brannon's assistant was leaving to go become an editor. And, uh, I, I really wanted to get into, in with the writers. And I had, uh, already had helped out assisting Brian Fuller, um, and some of the other writers on, um, on Voyager for a while. So I had some experience, um, but dropping into into that particular position was, you know, it's a showrunner's assistant. It's like the busiest job out there. There was a, a sense that DS9 was different than Voyager uh, in the, kind of the approach. And you worked a little on DS9 as well, right? Only in the respect that I was a PA where we would uh, occasionally I'd give, to I, would, I would help out and go over to the set and deliver things and, and whatnot. So I was able to walk around the set, which was incredible, but yeah. I was really on the show. What did, uh, when you, how, so how did this translate to getting to Enterprise? Uh, well, Voyager ended mm -hmm. and, and then, and Enterprise started. So, um, by then I was a full-time assistant for that. Mm. Did you spend any time with Rick Berman? No, lots of time. What, uh, what was that experience like? I mean, all of it was an education. Um, it was, you know, at that point, Star Trek was a well-oiled machine. They were almost, there were well over hundreds of episodes of television in in the can. Um, you know, they were consistently over twenty-five episode season pickups. So, uh, which is tremendously difficult. So, um, it was about breaking stories quick fast, getting them through production and getting them on the, st on the stage as quick as possible. Didn't sound like there's enough time to breathe. Uh, there's trying no to time to done. breathe, no. Um, as you guys progressed through the seasons, um, I think Manny Cotto came on. Um, how did you feel yourself growing through those four seasons? Did you feel like you became more in, in, you know, entrenched, ingrained into the process? Were you involved in any of the writing stuff? Or uh, I, I started, once I started to get more comfortable. I did start pitching stories. They sold a couple. I mean, thanks to, you know, uh, David Goodman and Chris Black and Mike Sussman and, uh, we're, we're all people who are really supportive of Brandon. Um, it, so, um, so I have a couple of story credits, uh, here and there. Um, but I, I, I wasn't quite ready to, 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 to take the full plunge yet. Mm -hmm. I, I was still getting my feet wet. Seasons two and now, especially seasons three, what do you think that DNA, what did you learn from that that made this so amazing? 
it's hard to say. I mean, there there is definitely a a '90s sensibility, maybe in some of the humor. You know, um, uh, not that it's eye rolling, hopefully, but there is a a, a a a kind of throwback tone at times. It's also quite modernized too. But there is a there is a bit more of the um, Berman era feeling at times, uh, and also not. You know, I, I think probably a lot. Some of the criticism of the show would be they should just go to a planet and explore it, and they should not do any serialized anything. And that's not necessarily the show. Uh, I I think they should make probably that would probably also come in the same mouth of too much fan service yet that would probably be the most fan service way to go um so i don't i don't know uh it's it's um i think there's a there is a certain sensibility to how these characters come together to solve problems with science i suppose that does feel like it's part of that that history right so when you uh, went from Enterprise, going back a little bit, um, what was the next step for you in your in your process in this in your career? After Enterprise, I I was an assistant on um, Twenty Four, mm -hmm. Show Twenty Four. Yeah. One of the guys from the Orville was directing Twenty or directing Twenty Four. Kassar, Kassar, John Kassar, yeah, a good friend of mine. Um, great guy. Yeah. Um, so you went from Twenty Four. How did you end up getting to? I know you did a bunch of other things, but. 12 Monkeys seems to have this Star Trek DNA. We were talking about the fact that that uh, it's set up where you have almost a captain yeah. and you've got people going on away missions. Yeah. And was that kind of in the back of your mind when you were making 12 Monkeys? Um, you do. There, There is a Picard sensibility to Jones, mm. uh, the, the, the scientist in charge of, of uh, Project Splinter and 12 Monkeys, without question. And that definitely was... Uh, a, a thing that we talked about in the writer's room. There's also a bit of Dama from Battlestar Galactica, again, Ron Moore. So there is a lot of that that uh, influence. Um, yeah, but no, it wasn't lost on us that it was a mission-based show through time. Um, yeah, that's there. Okay, we could feel it. Um, so 12 Monkeys ends, and then it's time to do something different, and you did some stuff. How did you end up at Star Trek again? Uh, right when, as 12 Monkeys was ending, um, there was, uh, a nice little bit of critical acclaim for, for the finale. Um, and, uh, we jumped on that and started, um, having my reps pound secret hideout saying, get me in there. I, I really want to, I know they, they were, they had lots of ideas for new Star Trek shows. And at the time, I think they were talking about doing a con show and I met with Akiva and we hit it off right away. Uh, uh, and so that looked like that was going to be a thing for a while. And then that did not go in. Instead, they did Picard. Yeah. Um, but they had already had um, uh, creators and showrunners in place for that. Um, so I moved on. I did this broadcast uh, network show, um, uh, MacGyver, um, and uh, uh, just to get my broadcast uh, chops, which was really fun, interesting, totally different muscle. <laughs> um, and then uh, about a year later, they said uh, that they would need someone to come in um, to help Akiva with Picard season two and then take over for season three. 
And I was like, <laughs> I want to, I want to, I want to meet on it right away. Um, how badly do you want to keep doing Star Trek? Look, I love Star Trek. I would love to be a part of Star Trek, you know, forever. Um, but, uh, you know, it's up to the, it's up to the television fates, you know, um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's bigger than me, you know, and there's, there's lots of voices out there that, that, that should want to be heard as well. Um, but Hey, if, uh, if I'm lucky enough, uh, I, I, I would love nothing more than to, than to do it. Until they call you back and bring you to do more. You're currently working on Witch Mountain. What can you tell us about that? I know not much, but. Uh, it is a pilot. Um, and uh, it's something I, I, I wrote four years ago with uh, co-writer Travis Fickett uh, and uh, John Fox. Um, and it's a reimagination, reimagining of uh, Witch Mountain, as you know it. So it's a it's a it's a it's a significant reboot uh, uh, thing. Um, I can't I'm not I can't talk too much about it. It's got Bryce Dallas Howard in it, and she's fantastic. Um, it has a lot of uh, my old Twelve Monkeys creatives involved, uh, so it has a, a a very specific feel to it. Um, and we're pretty proud of it, but we're waiting to hear and see what uh, happens over at Disney. But so far. It's all pretty positive, so we'll see. Nice. That 12 Monkeys creative is becoming a force to tour. Uh, they came over to do some Picard, the, the, with you Picard, yeah. and also now this next thing. Is this a is this your type group? Uh, you know, as, as long as we, you know, it's hard in showbiz to everybody gets spread around and, and uh, there's so many different projects. Mm -hmm. So uh, as long as, you know, you can keep people that you have a creative uh, uh, vibe with people, a shorthand, uh, uh, I think is really helpful um, and special too, uh, to be on those journeys together. They're, they're, um, they become dear friends um, and, uh, and, and war buddies. You can be like in the foxhole. You're in the foxhole, and it is a foxhole. Mm -hmm. Remember when we didn't have a script and we had this and we did this? Oh yeah, well you know what? Maybe we can do what we did with that story and blah 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 blah. That's really helpful. Not just writers, uh, you know, longtime editors and composers mm -hmm. and uh, directors of photography, and you know, I, I like to uh, if it works creatively with with people. You know, it's always it's always great to bring new people in and mix it up too. But if it works, it works. Yes, and it works. It works so well. The two hundred and fiftieth anniversary of Frontier Day. What made you choose that year, two hundred fifty years? Because I went back to twenty twenty one fifty three, and I tried to like figure out what was the initial basis of Frontier Day, and I couldn't quite figure it out. The initial idea was to do Fleet Week. Mm. was to do a nautical tradition, which is, you know, naval exercises. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then we we started to ask ourselves, well, what if it was sort of the 4th of July for Starfleet? It kind of worked out that it was pretty close to the launch uh, of the NX-01 mm. to Enterprise. That's right. And if this was a, a love letter to, to Star Trek, 
then why not uh, why not honor that moment um, and 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 lean towards that? It ends up being a centerpiece. And what started you on the the journey that you end up ended up choosing? And what was the inspiration for how you ended up starting the show? I knew I wanted to start with Beverly Crusher. She felt the most underserved in uh, certainly the feature films um, in a long while. And there was definitely an idea, certainly by the end of the episode, you see where we were going, that we that Patrick uh, also thought was intriguing um, to what might have been going on with Beverly Crusher for the last 20-something years. Uh, so... I had this idea about Beverly Crusher having this Doctors Without Borders ship and her popping in the frame with intruders. And that sort of kicked off uh, the idea of the season. Uh, and so we went from there. Um, obviously, it gets more involved. What was your motivation with bringing Picard and Riker together in the way that you did, which is different than we've seen in the past? So I was working with um, Jonathan a lot uh, in in season two. He was working, uh, uh, he was directing. Uh, so he was coming up to my office a lot for uh, prep while I was working on season three um, because he was shooting season two. And uh, I said, I'm thinking about doing a lot of Riker, a lot of Butch and Sundance with Picard. And he, I don't think he took me seriously. Mm. And I, I said, no, it, it, it's it's a lot. And he's like, but I'm not a very good actor. I'm like, yes, you are. And it's in, uh, I, the thing I wanted to do is bring a lot more Frakes to Riker. I wanted a lot more of the Patrick and uh, and Frakes dynamic in the show. Because mm -hmm. it's, it's so wonderful to be around the two of them. Um, and so that started uh, that journey. Um, and we just went from went from there that shows through by the way so you captured that what we have all heard the behind the scenes feels like there's so much good humor in this appropriate humor how did you come up with this whole get out to the titan use the titan as a, as a vessel to get to where they want to go what was that thinking it had to be a, a starship based season for me it, it, it felt like it was time to get back out into space um and it didn't feel right for them to just get back on the Enterprise. So the Titan seemed like a good choice with Riker's history, that he would try and leverage any power he had to get back onto a starship to get out that far outside of Federation space. And so who better for them to run into than First Officer Seven of Nine? It's a little wish fulfillment to see her in Starfleet. Um, and then quickly you see uh, not uh, everything is uh, uh, as we might have expected. It's not as wonderful for her as we might have hoped. And it was an excellent transition because we did see her get a field commission at the end of Picard season two. Yeah. So it made sense that this would be the case. Yeah. You go deep into Seven of Nine's uh, situation with Starfleet and being ex-Borg. Um, was it important for you to delve into that? I don't. Yeah, I think that that trauma is never really something you get over. You know, I think it's something you just learn to live with. So it's part of that character. 
same as it is for Picard. Uh, uh, so it's it's sort of this omnipresent thing. I mean, look, every time she looks into a mirror. And I think she's come to terms with it. I think it's part of her identity, uh, for better or worse, uh, for everyone else involved in, in the case of Shaw. Speaking of Shaw, he's a perfect spice added to this season. How did you realize you needed that access to the people we know? I, that's the best way I can probably explain it. They just needed a foil. They needed someone who, uh, who I love the idea that they were throwing around their legacy weight. And here comes this guy who's like, no, <clears throat> don't care. Yeah. Love that. By the way, Todd Stashwick says you were, um, you were Spielberg. You were the embodiment of Spielberg. What do you think about that? I looked directly at the camera and said, don't get, let this go to your head. <laughs> It's not. Don't worry, it's not going to my head. Uh, is he okay? Was he on anything at the time? Was he drinking? Was he drinking? He's got, uh, I love Todd. He, he's, he's very sweet uh, and, and way too kind. Um, Rafi yeah. is lights different than she was in seasons one and two of Picard. She's one of the few uh, characters that got brought over from the first two seasons. What was the thinking on how you would... Was there an intentionalness to develop this character to a different place? What was the thinking behind that? Well, I just liked the idea that she was Starfleet intelligence. And and I, I thought that was a really interesting way to pick her up in deep cover. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I liked the switcheroo. I, I like thinking that she might be seeing her, thinking she might have gone off the deep end or, or, or might have reverted to some of her past transgressions and uh and discovering no she is in fact using her her um experience in that world uh, uh to her benefit to for starfleet um, felt like a, a a great surprise to sort of reinvent the character a little bit we learned that eventually would learn that wharf is her handler um what made you choose wharf to be your handler and did that have anything to do with his progression into the character he's going to become, which is just a perfect character. So the idea for Worf this season, when we talked to Michael and when we were breaking it, was that he, he was a little bit more of a samurai, that he was out there chasing down leads uh, from the Dominion War. Um, and that uh, even though some of the canon books had him as captains of starship, we didn't want to negate and say that those things didn't happen. We're just saying that's not where he was now. Mm. Um, so um, we also thought there was a really interesting lone wolf and cub thing with Rafi and Worf that could be played, that they might have a really interesting chemistry between the two of them. And, uh, both Michael and Michelle agree, and and it gave them both a chance to shine. It did. It yeah. Beautiful, beautifully done. Um, Vatic. What was the inspiration for Vatic? Well, as an archetype, it we knew we wanted a classic Star Trek larger than life villain, mm. um, and um, without going into spoiler details as to who and what she is. Um, we knew that she would have some deep-rooted uh, feelings towards 
the Federation, and Starfleet in particular. And uh, there, there was an erratic sensibility we wanted to give her. And uh, Amanda Plummer was, I think, the first and almost only name that was ever brought up in that writer's room. Why? Uh, I'm just curious. I've just always been a fan of Amanda Plummer. I love Amanda Plummer. Um, uh, and uh, and there's also the Star Trek DNA in, in there as well. Um, but that wasn't at all a deciding factor or, 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 or a really strong contributing factor at all. It was mostly about Amanda. Mm. Um, Amanda has the ability to show... Um, Certainly that erratic sensibility, but also great sensitivity and um, unpredictability yeah. uh, that we thought was right for the character. Ed Spoilers, what was the motivation for Picard having a son, it being Beverly's, and the way you brought it into the whole thing was just like scrumptious. But how did you, where did it come from? Well, it started with just a character question which is what's the last unexplored relationship uh, for for Jean-Luc Picard to to explore in the final season of this show um and he had already kind of explored a, a father-daughter thing with Soji in season one he explored some romance in the second season and in certainly in some of the feature films and so it felt like a son uh that he uh, that he didn't know was was really interesting territory and we went down a few paths uh mirror universe was one but that felt a little not right and uh i had this idea in the back pocket that it could it be beverly crusher and i was terrified of pitching it to patrick for exactly the fan services of it all and before I could even get it out of my mouth, he said, what if it's Beverly? And it was like, that's a great idea. <laughs> and, we were, and we were off to the races. But it, 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 that also offered a lot of complications because why, did, why would that make sense? Um, it doesn't really. Um, it's, so you would have to create a story in which... Picard didn't know that because it, 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 it didn't it didn't feel like it wanted to be Kirk's story where Kirk stayed away from a son he knew he had. So this felt like it needed to be a son that Picard didn't know he had. And so if that's the case, that means Beverly kept his son away and why? Mm. And that became a theme for the season, the focus of the uh, of the season. Uh, Beverly is ultimately right in some, in, in 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 that regard. What was the deciding factor in shooting the scene at the end of episode two where there are no words? What would they say? You know, there, there's the, is it my son? Yes, it is, Jean-Luc. Like, there's, it, it's, it's so much more powerful than these, act, that these actors can just pull that off. Um, I, I think the looks, the score, the moment itself says everything that you don't you don't need it and if you built the episode right uh i felt like it could work i was worried it couldn't i was worried it wouldn't for sure but uh i think um certainly when we saw it at the chinese 
theater at the premiere the end uh, they showed both episodes and that moment played really well and so i was relieved that 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 worked god it was so beautiful Riker is probably the best version of himself he's ever been he's struggling with the uh, death of his son and it's impacting his family environment um what made you decide you wanted to go down that road with him it didn't feel like it could be ignored it was it was set up in season one and if you're telling the story of um his brother essentially his mentor jean-luc finding his son and in a way not necessarily rejecting it but certainly not embracing it um that would trigger some feelings for Riker. Um, and uh, which culminates in some disagreements on the bridge. They're both being fueled by their own feelings. Um, uh, for Picard is angry and Riker is fueled with uh, the drive to protect. And it leads to this conflict on the bridge at the end of three. So um, it was hopefully rich territory to take these two characters into places they hadn't been before. It leads very naturally into what you were just talking about. I guess your Crimson Tide moment. Picard and Riker don't agree on what's going to happen. The Titan is in dire straits. The Shrike has them right where they want them. You really explore that. Was it just a matter of taking the story further in and trying to really develop that out? Or or where, where did you want to go with that disagreement? I think it was the story of two fathers. Two fathers who, uh, one angry and one hurt on the bridge of a starship. And um, that's at its base core what it was. And then it's also strategy. <laughs> it's It's just submarine strategy. Um, we never got to see Riker in command, mm-hmm. what he would do as a captain and how Picard might disagree. Um, so uh, it was a really, we hope, uh, interesting dynamic to see on, on before it's all over, um, to, what these two might be like. Uh, this late in life, you know, the mentor and the protege now on equal footing, um, not seeing eye to eye uh, when the, the stakes are high and lives are at stake. It it, it seemed really cool. I, that was a terrible soundbite, but something like that. Portal weapon is going to be like the the big, big of the show. It's not. We won't say exactly what it is yet. What was the inspiration for that? And did you expect it to play so well? when you guys put it together? It was just a cool thing we came up with in the room. Mm. Um, We knew we wanted them to have stolen this really unique weapon. And it just came from uh, these brilliant writers in the writer's room pitching different ideas of what it could be. This, the idea of the portal weapon was really cool, but then we talked to visual effects, we're like, could we pull that off? And these big long shots where the portal opens and the ship comes through and it comes out on the other side. It seemed like I hadn't seen that in Star Trek before. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, we're, we're pretty excited to see how audiences are going to respond to that. The actors responded incredibly. You know, the, the shock of these people who've been around for decades 
have seen it all and like, holy shit, we're in trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was so great to pull up. What was the motivation in bringing Incinero back? And um, did you expect it to play as well as it did when you first began? And what do you think of the end result? It felt like if you were going to do the very last next generation story, that that was a dangling thread that you 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 wanted to pull on and and follow up on, and uh, in an episode that was essentially a paranoia thriller, what better way to come to a catharsis between two characters and try and decide if the person sitting across from you is really that person than by trying to get through your 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 past trauma together. Um, it felt like it could be a really terrific episode of television if we did it right. Um, and I, I, I'm very proud of the result. I, I think um, Michelle is extraordinary. I think Patrick is, is wonderful in it. I think it's... Uh, and it also serves to escalate the season right at the midpoint. Um, you know, Roe dies in an effort to save the galaxy. She sends them on the mission. She gives them the blueprint for the conspiracy. That felt powerful uh, for us. Did you know that would be the moment when the audience finally bought into what was happening and believed? Like that was the moment where they felt like it was okay to be like, yes, this is what's actually happening. Did you know that would be the turning point? I don't know. Is it? Is it, it is. It? Yeah, okay. no. I, I, you know, we, we hope. That's how we, we designed it. So we hope. Yeah. But it works really well. The story on bringing back Moriarty, a TNG favorite, fan favorite. How did you want to fit him into the story? That was probably the most, you know, for all the accusations of fan service, that was probably the most egregious one for me, which was I just wanted M. Moriarty back. Um, he was... Uh, one of my favorite components of Star Trek, the next generation. Um, and it was specifically tied to data and lore. And so when we were started to break that story and we knew that this AI system was based on data's brain and his mind, uh, I, I, someone said in the room, then what if Moriarty came out and I was like, there it is. That's how we do it. Um, and so, uh, it was, it was pretty fantastic. And then that gave us, got us to go to, you know, pop goes the weasel and, and, and all those things. They played it perfectly. Um, he doesn't, he's not in it for very long. And I think some of the fans have been, you know, thinking he's going to be the big bad villain. So it'll be a nice surprise that he's not. Yeah. <clears throat> but as you said, it leads into data lore. Um, you knew you couldn't bring data back specifically. At least I believe so. So what got you to the point where this character is who he ends up becoming? Certainly after Nemesis, it was clear yeah. that Data copied everything yeah. over onto B4. And it was unrecoverable. It didn't work. Um, but technology now is at a point where it might. Certainly his, it had worked by the end of season one. It was recoverable in some way. Uh, so... The idea that Alton Soon would possibly try again to succeed in his father's footsteps, um, to create the last perfect legacy Soon android, to be the most human, meant 
uh, to have data as the primary operating system, but to have some lore, to have a law, to have all these other components that that would that would humanize um, that synthetic Android. But he died before he got to make it work. So you have this um, schizophrenic Frankenstein incomplete monster um, now with these personalities at odds. And when we pitched it to Brent, the, the idea of multiple personalities, Jekyll and Hyde, it's it's just a thrilling thing for an actor to be able to play. Yeah, what was his response to doing that? He loved it. He loved it because, we, you know, within, you know, five seconds, he gets to play both data, lore, and, and everything else in between. Um, and it promises a kind of final data story and a kind of final lore story, which is also lore was shut down and archived, but there are, uh, there's, there's more to it. Jordy, uh, the Starfleet museum. Um, when you were trying to fit him into the story, was that just the natural conclusion and, or how did you see that fitting? Yeah, it, it felt like Jordy is the engineer who loves a starship where better to, to, to put him in, in a, in the, uh, the final resting place for these legendary starships felt um, cozy. Mm. That's where that's where I would want Jordy to be. That's great. And bringing his daughters in, what, where did that come from? Well, the idea for the show was always the passing of the torch from last generation to the next, and um, the LaForge sisters was a, was an idea just from watching All Good Things. It sort of implied that he would have he had a large family. Um, and when I spoke to to Lavar, I mean, I, I I was aware of Mika Burton being out there in the world and her aspirations for being an actress. I was like, we shouldn't make Mika be a Laundra LaForge, and he loved that idea, and so we just ran with it. We get a vis stunningly visual approach to the Fleet Museum that I think most fans, if they're if they're not really paying attention, they might miss it. How Difficult was it to recreate all those, you know, wonderfully historic vessels and to give fans the feeling that they're really seeing something that is historical. It made sense that in the Star Trek universe that that place existed. It was difficult from a design standpoint. We liked the idea that it was the old space dock that um, there was a new space dock and the old space dock that they dumped the old space dock. What did they do with it? Yeah. So, um, uh, and, uh, but it was difficult to certainly each one of those ships have to be reconstructed in CGI. And, and, and so that's, that's an expensive proposition for us in, um, to do, but um, it felt worthy. How great of a job did Dave Blast do on this job? On this, he's amazing. Show? He's amazing. He's amazing. Everybody gave their 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 heart to it. We're all, we're all fans, as it should be. Yeah. The Enterprise D. Uh, when did you know you wanted the Enterprise D to come back, and how did you fit into the story? From minute one, I knew the Enterprise has to be. We can't do a Star Trek Next Generation reunion without the Enterprise. We, we couldn't go, it, it was a choice. We could build the Enterprise E bridge or we could build the Enterprise D bridge or we could build the F. The F 
wouldn't have any emotional resonance. The E had some resonance, but only to the feature films. The D had seven amazing years, and this is where these people met. This is the beginning, and now we're at the end. So the D felt right. Uh, and so that was the, and I had, you know, look, uh, I've been skewered on the social media for not including the E and look, I, and, and I've, I've, I put it out there that the E had a final adventure. It's classified. We know Worf had something to do with it. Someone's going to tell that story. Maybe it'll be me. Maybe it'll be somebody else and it'll be amazing. Um, but I want, I love the E. I want the E to have its due. It wasn't this story. The F wanted to honor the fans who love Star Trek online. It's not my ship. Um, but uh, I think it's cool. The D felt felt right here for for the end. And um, and so I, it's a secret we've just had to hold on to for years now. To the F for a second. So Star Trek on Instagram gave away that the F is being decommissioned, hmm. um, which we thought was interesting that they put that out there. We find out in the episode that the F doesn't quite make it. What was the motivation to do that and to, and, and to introduce the final newest enterprise? I love the idea that this whole time with the Titan, you were telling the origin story of the Enterprise G, of the new Enterprise. This underdog that earned its place as, as the flagship title in in starfleet i don't know that everyone's gonna love it but i love it um and uh we loved it as uh, in, in in the writing staff and it it felt m m important to um seven of nine's legacy too uh when she became captain we we went down uh, a variety of different names for the ship uh and but ultimately the one that we felt was the most satisfying for star trek was that it was enterprise amen if it would have been anything else i would have freaked out on you no, we're lost now. <laughs> it was perfect choice so that moment when they come back out on the bridge how hard was it a to recreate the the setting the set for the d for the bridge and uh what was the moment behind the scenes for the actors portraying the roles out of character it was tremendously difficult mm. to pull off of time. We had to start building uh, right when we started shooting. And I think we were still gluing carpet on as the cameras were rolling. Uh, but Dave Blast uh, and his department, uh, they nearly killed themselves to get it ready in time. I mean, we went back to the original blueprints mm. and had everybody involved from the, the Akutas to... Um, Hermit Zimmerman to to everyone who 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 had anything to do with that bridge originally um, came and we got their blessing to make sure it was a hundred percent accurate to uh, to the way it was when 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 it shot during Next Generation. It looks like it. It was extraordinary. Changelings, Dominion War. Yeah. How did you know we all wanted to go there? And what made you? Well, I didn't know that everybody wanted to go there. I just knew I wanted to go there. They seemed like a, an amazing villain yeah. um, to, to do, because they they could look like anyone. Um, and and in, uh, to do an infiltration within Starfleet was such a, um, 
uh, tantalizing idea uh, to go there, um, especially after how it ended in Deep Space Nine with an almost attempted genocide. Um, it didn't feel like that was a happy ending for all parties involved. Um, you know, gosh, you wish you really wish Renee Bergeois was around and he would totally be in this season. Um, but uh, it, it, that was one of the, that was an idea that was around right from the very beginning as well. How, who came up with the idea to incorporate Jack's blood, Jack's DNA for the transporters to get the, you know, to move everything around. Who came up with that? that was amazing. Like, where did that come from? We liked the idea that, that the younger generation would become assimilated and needed to be saved by the, the, the older generation. Um, and um, is there an organic way to make that work? There's also something chilling about the idea of every time you go into a, through a transport system, mm. like, you hope it works. Right. <laughs> you hope no one's tampered with it. Um, and what if someone has? Um, and so all the pieces kind of just came together in what we thought was cool. Mm -hmm. uh, just a really interesting way. And it and it is a part of the paranoia thriller um, tapestry of the manipulation of 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 your everyday environment and 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 so that was and that would be the case for people within starfleet was that something you guys had fleshed out early on or did it come later we all of the big moves of the season we had to flesh out mm. early on we had we had to know those specifics but right away um the first changeling we established is a transport attack because he's there on the ship messing with the transporter system. Uh, so you can't write that unless you know that's what they're doing. You needed to know the ins and outs of that conspiracy before you wrote word, word one on any of these scripts. The bird of prey cloaking device. Genius, like technology that's old to, right. you know, to, to combat the new. Uh, where did that come from? And was it just, some people are gonna scream fan service, but it has a purpose, it's beautiful. I mean, how did you decide that? I don't care if they scream fan service. It, it, it actually came from, they just need, they were on the run and they needed to, to hide. Um, the, the organic trace of that was, they're like, well, it's in a weird way, they need a cloaking device. Mm -hmm. and, and we knew they were gonna to go to Jordy for help. And, and, and then the next question was like, well, maybe Jordy has a cloaking device. And then the next thing said, well, what if they had the bounty? So yeah, sure. You could say it's fan service, but it's awesome. So shut yeah. up. And it has a purpose. It's like, it makes <laughs> sense. We didn't just do it to do it. You know, it, so. Uh, Kirk was on the run too. So. Right. It, 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 again. Yeah. And that's whatever. Gotcha. Why the Bork? Right? Yeah. Why the Bork? Yeah. I mean, that's an emotional reason. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the Borg was a very early idea. It was one of the first things I talked to Patrick about was I asked him, I said, what's the very worst thing that ever happened to Picard? And they thought about it and he's like, Lacutus. And I said, and what's the very worst thing that could happen to his son? And he'd never want to see his son go through. And he said, Lacutus. I said, what if we did that? And he started to lean in. 
because neither of us necessarily wanted to go to the Borg well again, unless it was a really emotional story. Once we asked those questions, it started to illuminate a path for us that um, it asked, what do we pass on? We pass on good things. We pass on bad things. And, and that was what if Picard had inadvertently passed on some part of Locutus to his son and someone was trying to weaponize it. So and deep. It, it, it felt also like a proper next generation conclusion, a story that was set up 30 years ago could finish here. The motivation for Shaw's feelings we've learned that felt so naturally perfect um, because you don't know why he's being a dick for a while. Right. Um, how easy was it to incorporate that? And did you realize it was going to play so well? We don't know if it plays well yet. Fuck yeah, it plays well. Yeah, it plays so well. You don't know yet, guys. It was always a really interesting aspect of that pilot at Deep Space Nine was that moment with Picard and Cisco. We thought it would be really interesting to tell the story of... Uh, uh, a former engineer who rose through the ranks of Starfleet, who was there that day. I, I, I even remember when I was a kid watching Star Trek, the next generation after Picard was assimilated two episodes later, he he's back on the bridge. Seems like a bad call for Starfleet. It seems like, you know, obviously they did a scan and he seems like they, you know, they thought he was fit for duty. And then in first contact, they sort of suggest he still has some connection to the collective. He can still hear them. So it's always been this thing in my mind that there's got to be people like Cisco who have a real resentment to this guy being this legendary captain who is also a key component to essentially Pearl Harbor. To uh, a surprise attack, you know, to this 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 horrible uh, tragedy. What better way to do it than this um, monologue by Todd Stashwick, this this Indianapolis Robert Shaw yes. monologue um, uh, uh, by 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 Todd to Patrick, and he's 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 just phenomenal in that scene. Fifteen hundred men went down. Yes. Yeah. It was. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, couple of cameos. Um, we got Tuvok. Mm -hmm. What was the idea of why Tim Russ, and um, and how did that all go down? I, why not Tim Russ? He's amazing. It's it's great to see a great Vulcan again. I I, I love Tuvok. He's one of my favorite uh, uh, Voyager characters. I also. Uh, liked how he would have been very difficult to read. Hmm. She's not quite sure if he's a changeling or not. And him being a Vulcan wouldn't, wouldn't help that. Right. So they're doing a, a, a vocal analysis. They're watching everything to see if this is, is this him? This make, it could be him. Is it not him? And then of course we flip the, flip the card. And it's not him. It's tragic. And hopefully he's okay. Yeah. Admiral Shelby. Yes. And why, I guess. I want to say why. Why did you bring her and why did you kill her? Well, who better to be there for the Borg's surprise attack 
than Admiral Shelby, who was there for the Borg surprise attack. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, um, there, that we, we had talked about quite a few people. Um, there was, uh, some names that I ran up the flagpole that were, I wasn't allowed to use. Um, uh, but Shelby, she's an amazing actress too, Elizabeth Dennehy, and came in and had that monologue just down pat. It was perfect. She looked great. It, it, it just worked out perfect. It worked out perfect. And, and and she's a connection to the the most important Borg story of them all. And she, it's very believable that she would be in the position she's in. Yeah. All that, especially even with Tuvok, it's very believable where they're at in right. the universe. Yeah. That makes sense. Is there anybody else that you wanted to bring that just didn't work out or, you know? Yeah, but I can't talk. About can't talk about it. Yeah. The Enterprise G comes out. And Captain Seven, when you developed the ending, did you do it with the realization that you wanted it to move forward to future Star Trek? Was that intentional? It was certainly the right ending to that story. And by right ending, it's the right beginning. You know, you want to know that your heroes go on in this case. Obviously, I'd love to tell that story. Obviously, you know, but um, if not, then in your imagination, it's good to know that the Enterprise exists with Captain Seven and Jack and Rafi by her side going out there with Esmar and Mura. You, you know, that 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 it exists and it's it's a it's a fitting ending um to that story, I think. Uh one thing I missed, the bridge crew, very eclectic group mm-hmm. of aliens. Um, was that intentional, or how would your how did your choices come? Yeah, out? I mean, it's Star Trek, right? You want to see, you want to see infinite diversity and infinite combinations. Okay, and then finally, the Q thing that we wanted to, that that tells me you really want to do Star Trek more Star Trek. Can you talk about why you decided to use Q with Jack? I really wanted to see Q again. Um, I love the idea that even though. Uh, we had seen some version of what Q might believe is a final scene with Picard. Q's infinite. And he goes on forever. And he says, oh, you're so linear. You could, you could have Q forever. Uh, and that uh, he would spend a lot of time with the next generation. I like the idea in my head that when he was going to lean into Picard's ear and whisper at the end of all good things, he was actually going to talk about Jack. Um, and why not do that here? Um, it's actually kind of one of my favorite scenes in the entire season is that last moment with Jack and Q. It, 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 uh, it gives me goosebumps and we didn't have a lot of time to shoot it. And I love John. Um, and I love that final look on Ed and I, I want to see that show. (laughs) 